Hello there. Welcome to episode 25 of Down to Sleep. This is the podcast of softly spoken stories to help you get a good night's rest. Tonight, I will be reading you The Legend of Sleepy Hollow by Washington Irving. Before we jump in, if you would like to support this podcast by joining our Sleepy Book Club on Patreon, where you'll get a bonus reading every single week and every episode is twice as long, you can do that at patreon.com slash down to sleep. It's only a few dollars a month. The link should be in the information for this episode, and I would love to have you join our little community on there. But otherwise, thank you so much for listening. I just really enjoy reading to you, and I hope that you find this podcast useful. So thank you for being here. Let's begin. Go ahead and tuck yourself in and get nice and comfortable. It's time for the legend of Sleepy Hollow. In the bosom of one of those spacious coves which indent the eastern shore of the Hudson, at that broad expansion of the river denominated by the ancient Dutch navigators the Tepanzee, and where they always prudently shortened sail and implored the protection of St. Nicholas when they crossed, there lies a small market town or rural port, which by some is called Greensburg, but which is more generally and properly known by the name of Tarrytown. This name was given, we are told, in former days, by the good housewives of the adjacent country. From the inveterate propensity of their husbands to linger about the village tavern on market days. Be that as it may, I do not vouch for the fact but merely advert to it, for the sake of being precise and authentic. Not far from this village, perhaps about two miles, there is a little valley, or rather lap of land among high hills, which is one of the quietest places in the whole world. A small brook glides through it, with just murmur enough to lull one to repose, and the occasional whistle of a quail, or tapping of a woodpecker, is almost the only sound that ever breaks in upon the uniform tranquillity. I recollect that when a stripling, my first exploit in squirrel shooting, was in a grove of tall walnut trees that shade one side of the valley. I had wandered into it at noontime, when all nature is peculiarly quiet, and I was startled by the roar of my own gun as it broke the Sabbath stillness around prolonged and reverberated by angry echoes. If ever I should wish for a retreat whither, I might steal from the world and its distractions, and dream quietly away the remnant of a troubled life. I know of none more promising than this little valley. From the listless repose of the place and the peculiar character of its inhabitants, who were descendants from the original Dutch settlers, this sequestered glen has long been known by the name Sleepy Hollow. Its rustic lads are called the Sleepy Hollow Boys throughout the neighboring country. A drowsy, dreamy influence seems to hang over the land and pervade the very atmosphere. Some say the place was bewitched by a high German doctor during the early days of the settlement. Others that an old Indian chief the prophet or wizard of his tribe held his powwows there before the country was discovered by Master Hendrick Hudson. Certain it is, the place still continues under the sway of some witching power that holds a spell over the minds of the good people, 
causing them to walk in a continual reverie. They are given to all kinds of marvellous beliefs, subject to trances and visions, and frequently they see strange sights and hear music and voices in the air. The whole neighbourhood abounds with local tales, haunted spots and twilight superstitions. Stars shoot and meteors glare oftener across the valley than in any other part of the country, and the nightmare with her whole ninefold seems to make it the favourite scene of her gambols. The dominant spirit, however, that haunts this enchanted region, and seems to be commander-in-chief of all the powers of the air, is the apparition of a figure on horseback without a head. It is said by some to be the ghost of a Hessian trooper, whose head had been carried away by a cannonball in some nameless battle during the Revolutionary War, and who is ever and anon seen by the country folk hurrying along in the gloom of night, as if on the wings of the wind. His haunts are not confined to the valley, but extend at times to the adjacent roads, and especially to the vicinity of a church at no great distance. Indeed, certain of the most authentic historians of those parts who have been careful in collecting and collating the floating facts concerning this spectre, allege that the body of the trooper having been buried in the churchyard, the ghost rides forth to the scene of a battle in a nightly quest of his head, and that the rushing speed with which he sometimes passes along the hollow, like a midnight blast, is owing to his being belated and in a hurry to get back to the churchyard before daybreak. Such is the general purport of this legendary superstition, which has furnished materials for many a wild story in that region of shadows, and the spectre is known at all the country firesides by the name the Headless Horseman of Sleepy Hollow. It is remarkable that the visionary propensity I have mentioned is not confined to the native inhabitants of the valley, but is unconsciously imbibed by everyone who resides there for a time, however wide awake they may have been before they entered that sleepy region. They are sure, in a little time, to inhale the witching influence of the air, and begin to grow imaginative, to dream dreams and see apparitions. I mention this peaceful spot with all possible lord, for it is in such little retired Dutch valleys, found here and there embosomed in the great state of New York, that population, manners, and customs remain fixed, while the great torrent of migration improvement which is making such incessant changes in other parts of this restless country sweeps by them unobserved. They are like those little nooks of still water which border a rapid stream where we may see the straw and bubble riding quietly at anchor, or slowly revolving in their mimic harbour, undisturbed by the rush of the passing current. Though many years have elapsed since I trod the drowsy shades of Sleepy Hollow, yet I question whether I should not still find the same trees and the same families vegetating in its sheltered bosom. In this by-place of nature there abode, in a remote period of American history, 
that is to say, some thirty years since, a worthy wight of the name of Ichabod Crane, who sojourned, as he expressed it, tarried in Sleepy Hollow, for the purpose of instructing the children of the vicinity. He was a native of Connecticut, a state which supplies the Union with pioneers for the mind as well as for the forest, and sends forth yearly its legions of frontier woodmen and country schoolmasters. He was tall, but exceedingly lank, with narrow shoulders, long arms and legs, hands that dangled a mile out of his sleeves, feet that might have served for shovels, his whole frame most loosely hung together. His head was small and flat at the top, with huge ears, large green glassy eyes, and a long snipe nose, so that it looked like a weathercock perched upon his spindle neck to tell which way the wind blew. To see him striding along the profile of a hill on a windy day, his clothes bagging and fluttering about him, one might have mistaken him for the genius of famine descending upon the earth, or a scarecrow eloped from a cornfield. His schoolhouse was a low building of one large room, rudely constructed of logs, the windows partly glazed and partly patched with leaves of old copybooks. It was most ingeniously secured at vacant hours by a width twisted in the handle of the door, stakes set against the window shutters, so that though a thief might get in with perfect ease, he would find some embarrassment in getting out. An idea most probably borrowed by the architect, Jost van Houten, from the mystery of an eel pot. The schoolhouse stood in a rather lonely but pleasant situation, just at the foot of a woody hill, with a brook running close by, and a formidable birch tree growing on one end of it. From hence the low murmur of his pupils' voices, conning over their lessons, might be heard in a drowsy summer's day, like the hum of a beehive, interrupted now and then by the authoritative voice of the master in a tone of menace or command. By the appalling sound of a birch, he urged some tardy loiterer along the flowery path of knowledge. Truth to say, he was a conscientious man, and ever bore in mind the golden maxim, spare the rod and spoil the child. Ichabod Crane's scholars certainly were not spoiled. I would not have it imagined, however, that he was one of those cruel potentates of the school, who joy in the smart of their subjects. On the contrary, he administered justice with discrimination rather than severity, taking the burden off the backs of the weak and laying it on those of the strong. Your mere puny stripling that winced at the least flourish of the rod was passed by with indulgence, but the claims of justice were satisfied by inflicting a double portion on some little tough, wrong-headed, broad-skirted Dutch urchin, who sulked and swelled and grew dogged and sullen beneath the birch. All this he called doing his duty by their parents. He never inflicted a chastisement without following it by the assurance, so consolatory to the smarting urchin that he would remember it, and thank him for it in the longest day that he had to live. 
when school hours were over, he was even the companion and playmate of the larger boys, and on holiday afternoons would convoy some of the smaller ones home, who happened to have pretty sisters, or good housewives for mothers, noted for the comforts of the cupboard. Indeed, it behooved him to keep on good terms with his pupils. The revenue arising from his school was small, and would have been scarcely sufficient to furnish him with daily bread, for he was a huge feeder, and though lank, had the dilating powers of an anaconda. But to help out his maintenance he was, according to country custom in those parts, boarded and lodged at the houses of the farmers whose children he instructed. With these he lived successively, a week at a time, getting the rounds of the neighbourhood, with all his worldly effects tied up in a cotton handkerchief. That all this might not be too onerous on the purses of his rustic patrons, who were apt to consider the costs of schooling a grievous burden, and schoolmasters as mere drones, he had various ways of rendering himself useful and agreeable. He assisted the farmers occasionally in the lighter labours of their farms, helped to make hay, mended the fences, took the horses to water, drove the cows from pasture, and cut wood for the winter fire. He laid aside, too, all the dominant dignity and absolute sway with which he lauded it in his little empire, the school, and became wonderfully gentle and ingratiating. He found favour in the eyes of the mothers by petting the children, particularly the youngest, and like the lion bold, which whilom so magnanimously the lamb did hold, he would sit with a child on one knee, and rock a cradle with his foot for whole hours together. In addition to his other vocations, he was the singing master of the neighbourhood, and picked up many bright shillings by instructing the young folks in psalmody. It was a matter of no little vanity to him on Sundays, to take his station in front of the church gallery, with a band of chosen singers where, in his own mind, he completely carried away the palm from the parson. Certain it is his voice resounded far above all the rest of the congregation. And there are peculiar quavers still to be heard in that church, which may even be heard half a mile off, quite to the opposite side of the mill pond on a still Sunday morning which are said to be legitimately descended from the nose of Ichabod Crane. Thus, by divers little makeshifts, in that ingenious way which is commonly denominated by hook and by crook, the worthy pedagogue got on tolerably enough, and was thought, by all who understood nothing of the labour of headwork, to have a wonderfully easy life of it. The schoolmaster is generally a man of some importance in the female circle of a rural neighbourhood, being considered a kind of idle, gentleman-like personage, of vastly superior taste and accomplishments to the rough country swains, and indeed inferior in learning only to the parson. His appearance, therefore, is apt to occasion some little stir at the tea-table of a farmhouse, the addition of dishes of cakes or sweetmeats, the parade of a silver teapot. Our man of letters, therefore, was peculiarly happy in the smiles of all the country damsels. How he would figure among them in the churchyard between services on Sundays, 
gathering grapes for them from wild vines that overran the surrounding trees, reciting for their amusement all the epitaphs on the tombstones, sauntering with a whole bevy of them along the banks of the adjacent mill pond, while the more bashful country bumpkins hung sheepishly back, envying his superior elegance and address. From his half-itinerant life, he was a kind of travelling gazette, carrying the whole budget of local gossip from house to house, so his appearance was always greeted with satisfaction. He was, moreover, esteemed by the women as a man of great erudition, for he had read several books quite through, and was a perfect master of Cotton Mather's History of New England Witchcraft, in which, by the way, he most firmly and potently believed. And that is where we close the book on Sleepy Hollow in this episode of Down to Sleep. If you would like to hear the rest of this reading, then join our book club on Patreon at patreon.com slash downtosleep. I hope that you are feeling very relaxed, if not already asleep, but if you're not, don't fret. There's another 24 episodes for you to go and check out and listen to and drift off to sleep with me reading to you. It's going to be okay. Just take a nice deep breath and we'll do our best to get you there. Thank you so much for joining me. I really enjoyed this one, and I will see you next week for another episode of Down to Sleep. Good night.